Hi everyone, and I thought I'd finally get around to doing a podcast on my own today, just Michael Fordham, chatting about explaining acupuncture and how acupuncture works, because it's the one question I get asked most in practice, and I'm hoping that I can explain it today in a way that's reachable, and in a way that is simple enough so my patients can understand exactly why we do what we do and maybe why I feel a pulse and while I'll, why I check the tongue and while I'll feel along the body and, and feel for different parts of the body to, for where to put the needles. Um, so I started, let me say, talk initially a little bit about when I started doing traditional Chinese medicine and that was about 14 years ago. And the reason why I went down that track was because when I had a patient who wasn't responding in the way that I'd hoped, I would often refer them to acupuncturists and they would get better. And finally, I got curious enough to sort of question why, why they were getting better and why they could help them more than what I could possibly do. So I wanted to spend some time looking into that and, and then it aroused my interest. I read a couple of books and I thought, wow, there's something in this. And... Then I found something congruent with the way that I view the body, that anyone who comes to see me will know that often I look at someone might have pain in their left leg and I'll be treating their right shoulder, which essentially is a theory of acupuncture, of yin and yang, that you're treating the opposite. So when I looked into this further, I I realized that uh, I had a lot more in common with what they were saying was the cause of problems than what I initially thought. So I uh, started doing some uh, courses to do with understanding traditional Chinese medicine and medical acupuncture courses, and that was, and then I did the advanced courses of those, and then I became even more excited. So then I decided to do more courses, and I did five element acupuncture, which is uh, a style of acupuncture that I don't use, but it really helped me to understand uh, the emotional aspects of using acupuncture and also help with diagnosis. And then I also did obstetrics and gynecology and then I did sports injuries and then I did a thing called advanced pulse diagnosis. And I pretty much do at least two seminars a year in understanding acupuncture and getting uh, my skills more refined. So hopefully I can get even better at what I'm doing. So. Uh, this is unrehearsed again, like a lot of my podcasts, so bear with me. I'm going to do my absolute best to try to get through you know, what I think are the essentials that you guys need to know, especially with um, hopefully giving you a sort of scientific rationale and then more a traditional approach as to why, uh, you know, for thousands of years, acupuncture was, you know, has worked for thousands of years and uh, now it's being even more embraced across not only physiotherapists who and chiropractors who do a version of acupuncture that doesn't involve the deeper diagnosis called dry needling, but it seems to have made a re- renaissance now with um, traditional um, you know, Western medicine, especially in terms of things like fertility, uh, because they've done a lot of research projects uh, to show now that uh, if you combine, for instance, IVF treatment with acupuncture, your outcomes are up to 45% more favorable. So, all right, let's start at the start. 
And first of all, I think we've got to talk a little bit about yin-yang theory. And, you know, what yin-yang actually means, you see a lot of people with these funky tattoos that are the black and white, uh, uh, little funny-shaped, paisley-type, paisley sort of shaped things with the dot in them. Uh, but actually, yin-yang is a theory of duality. Um, and I guess we've got to explain a little bit about what yin-yang theory is, because it's a kind of logic um, which views things in relation to its whole. The theory is based on sort of two components, yin and yang, which are neither materials nor energy. Um, basically, these things combine in a complementary manner and form a method for explaining relationships between objects. And gradually, this logic was de developed into a system of thought that was applied to other areas. And traditional Chinese medicine, of course, is an example of one area where it was, it was adopted. Um, but the, the origin of it, it comes from uh, thousands of years ago, yin originally referred to the shady side of a slope, while yang referred to the sunny side. And later, this thinking was used in understanding other things which occurred in pairs and had complementary and opposing characteristics in nature. And some examples of that would include sky and earth, day and night, water and fire, active and passive, male and female, hard and soft, hot and cold, so on, it goes on and on and on. And it's this dual nature in the universe that seems to uh, apply to so many fundamentals of the way the universe works, but not just... Um, on a, on a greater, broader scheme, but also, you know, in cellular terms, at the very heart of quantum physics, that same belief system still occurs. Um, I, I feel that uh, I've read books about yin and yang, and um, sometimes it's been pretty hard work. And other times it's been really fascinating, because uh, to truly understand a concept of yin and yang, um, it, it's to understand the concept of a thing called duality, and pretty much what that means is that I'm trying to put this in general terms without reading from anything uh, from the way I understand it, so bear with me. But pretty much that for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction, if that makes sense. So in terms of the way your body works, uh, for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction and that's in terms of not only the way we posturally work but the way our organs work as well. And if you take a medication to boost the function of one organ um, or to minimize symptoms, it has a knock-on effect somewhere else. So we know, no, these are known as side effects. So I've always thought that, I've always been fascinated with this concept of, of duality or you know, opposing forces. And the thing is that with yin-yang, if you think of it in terms of the way a human being functions, Often we see that to, to truly understand that that blacks that black symbol and the white symbol means that these two forces work in work in opposite to keep it in harmony, but it's not one or the other. And pretty much like most things in life, uh, there is a continuum involved. And continuum is a funny word, but it just is a funny way of saying a scale. So when we boil water, it doesn't go from zero to 100. So it doesn't go from zero to boiling. 
it has to incrementally raise up from 10 to 20 to 30 to 40, 50, 60, 70, and then it boils. So there's this whole transition. And what can happen once we get to uh, the very end of uh, that continuum, the yin-yang belief is to keep it in harmony, you need a little bit of the opposite to keep it in balance once you get to the, to the very end of the spectrum. So that's what that little white dot means as far as, you know, it, it, let me put a, a very broad term on that. And that means that, for instance, for, if you consider someone an evil person, would that evil person be capable of a good deed? Yes. And for instance, if someone is a saint or a really great person, could they be capable of a bad thought or a bad deed? And the answer is yes, because they're human. And so, you know, that continuum also exists through the way a lot of things work in nature. So I'm hoping that just explains a little bit about uh, a little bit about yin and yang and how it applies to what I do. Firstly, when um, I feel someone's pulse, uh, you'll know that there's, I feel it on three points on the left hand, three points on the right hand, and I feel superficial and I feel deep. And with those points, what I'm actually feeling for uh, is firstly the way blood flows through there. So the first part of the pulse represents the upper third of the body, the middle part of the pulse represents the middle third, and the lower part represents the lower part, and by part I'm in the abdomen. So we're feeling how blood's flowing through the abdomen. So if the pulse is, is absent at the front, it means blood's not flowing through, through well through at the top. Or if it's, it's really high in the middle part of the pulse, it means the blood's not moving well and it's stuck in the middle, and vice versa down below. And it can happen in any, any uh, pattern, although there are common patterns that do occur. Uh, most commonly that energy gets caught in the middle third um, in the, around the stomach, spleen, liver, gallbladder area. But more often than not, um, there is an imbalance there. So people in really good health have blood flowing through all three parts of, of that pulse and, and representing then all three parts of the abdomen. So there are, in Chinese medicine, there are yin organs and there are yang organs. And traditionally, the yin organs are solid and the yang organs are hollow. And so, for instance, the kidneys are yin. Um, the heart is considered yin because if you cut a heart up, it's not hollow, even though it does have blood. It's a thick muscle. And believe it or not, the lungs are considered yin because if you've ever done an autopsy on someone, you, you think the lungs are hollow, but they're not. They're actually quite a really dense, thick sponge. Um, and not that I do autopsies. Uh, I did that at uni where we had to dissect bodies and take them apart, so that's how I know that firsthand. Uh, but also, the yang organs are considered more the alimentary canal, so it's more like your stomach, your large intestine, your small intestine. And incidentally, the, the meridians for those organs uh, are all on the outside of the body, and the meridians for the yin organs are all on the inside of the body. So that's just a broad concept of how yin and yang exists within the body as well. So that, ends up, that sort of ends the first part of my podcast, explaining a bit of yin and yang and how the, 
you know, how that applies to the body and, and why I do the pulse. And I look at the tongue too, because the tongue gives an indication of your digestive health because it's, a, it, it's an extension of your stomach. So from the tongue, you can see how blood's flowing. And once again, the tongue also has a map on it, like the pulse does. And incidentally, there are maps all along your body. Um, and there's a map on your tongue, there's a map on your ear, and believe it or not, there's maps of the body under your feet. And so the Chinese have identified that thousands of years ago. So when I look at your tongue, once again, it's a confirmation of the middle third, the upper third, the lower third of your abdomen. So if, if you've got whiteness or you've got uh, if your tongue's pale or dark red, it's an indication of how any like blood is moving through those areas and whether or not there is any uh, mold or damp, we call it, or if there's any heat or there is any um, blood insufficiency, so blood's not flowing through very well or someone's not absorbing very well. It's all just a guide. And you, you basically with getting a diagnosis in Chinese medicine, you've got to combine it with the history of chatting to someone and their health problems and also their pulse. Uh, and also, um, you know, there, there's a lot of subtle things like uh, when I did five element acupuncture, everyone has a certain smell, which I don't really use because it was a bit too random and um, it was a little bit too, uh, too abstract for me to grab onto, but uh, certainly you know, the way everyone has a unique smell and believe it or not, the way they diagnose is also based upon the, the way in which somebody speaks. So that whether they inflect their voice high or whether they talk monotone or whether they talk fast or slow, all these things are a sign of, you know, help you diagnose. And that, that, it, that style of care of five element acupuncture is based upon categorizing each individual into one of the five elements. And five element is another part of traditional Chinese medicine. And the five elements are metal, earth, fire, water, and what have I forgotten? Uh, wood, wood. Simple way to remember it is often earth is seen as the center and wood comes out of the ground. So that would be a tree coming out of the ground but if you were to burn the tree with fire, fire would turn back into ash and blend with the earth. And then underneath the earth, which is um, metal and water, over time you will get minerals formed and, and water seeps into the earth and then seeps down. So then the cycle reoccurs because uh, a tree wood needs earth and uh, to, to grow up again. So let's let's finish up there with yin yang and let's move on to something a little bit different and let's try to demystify acupuncture because I think acupuncture in, in some ways is poorly understood and sometimes um, the science of it isn't 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 explained well. So I just wanted to explain a little bit about the science if I could. Um, so hang in there. Um, if you follow me with this, I think you'll get something out of it. So please hang in there. Um, we've been told that Chinese medicine involves sort of this mysterious energy called qi, and you know, and this qi circulates through invis invisible meridians in the body. Um, when the flow of qi through our meridians becomes blocked, you know, illness results. 
And the purpose of acupuncture and other Chinese medical therapies is to promote the proper flow of qi through these meridians and thus restoring health. And I'm sure you've heard that concept at some point. And if you've ever been to an acupuncturist in the West, um, like me, I'm sure, sure you've, you've received some version of this explanation. Um, and understandably, these fundamental concepts of Chinese medicine have been difficult for Western patients and doctors to accept. And if you sit a doctor down who has had 10 years of postgraduate medical training and tell him that an unidentified energy called qi flowing through imaginary meridians is the key to health and disease, he's going to look at you like you're crazy. And, you know, and to a certain point, I don't blame them. So a lot of people believe that a lot of what we've taught about these um, Chinese medicine meridians isn't correct. And I do believe that, um, I actually do believe in the meridians and I do believe in a concept of energy, but I don't believe in the, in the concept and the rationale behind it. And I just want to explain why. And, and what if I told you that Chinese medicine isn't woo-woo and esoteric, uh, but a sort of functional flesh and bones medicine based on the same physiology as Western medicine. And what if I told you I could explain the mechanisms of Chinese medicine in simple, familiar terms that any eight-year-old could understand, and even the most skeptical, conservative doctor couldn't argue with? Here's the thing. The energy meridian model that has become the default explanation of Chinese medicine is not only out of sync with our modern scientific understanding of the body, it's also completely inconsistent with classical Chinese medical theory. In other words, we've made up our own Western version of Chinese medicine that's little, it's little with how it was understood in practice when it, when it was started more than 3,000 years ago in China. This gross mischaracterization has kept Chinese medicine on the fringes of conventional med medical care most doctors and patients have simply been unable to accept the explanation they've been offered for how acupuncture works. The re result is that acupuncture has become, has come to be seen as either a mystical psychic medicine or a fluffy, relaxing spa type treatment to some people. And that's a really big shame because Chinese medicine is in fact a complete system of medicine that has successfully treated many common health conditions for more than 2,500 years. And Chinese medicine was passed through the ages in an unbroken lineage of some of the best minds of China. And it was used by emperors in the royal courts to help them live into their 90s and stay fertile till later in life at a time when the average life expectancy in the West was 30 years. Chinese medicine has been around a long, long time. And if we if we really look into what the Chinese did to understand it back then, I think you might be really surprised. Because the Chinese were performing detailed human dissections where they carefully measured the blood vessels and weighed the internal organs at a time when Western physicians thought the body was made up of humours. That's not humorous, sorry. And these dissections helped Chinese physicians to discover the phenomenon of continuous blood circulation 2,000 years before it was discovered in the West. And the discovery of blood circulation is still considered the most, single most important event in the history of medicine. 
The reason Chinese medicine isn't more popular in the West than it can, it's because it's so misunderstood. And what I'd like to do is explain a little bit about more about that blood flow and explain how they came to understand it in, in more detail. Much of what we know about Chinese medicine comes from a book called the, oh, I don't even want to pronounce this, but uh, it's called the HDNJ, or otherwise known as the Yellow Emperor's Internal Classic. And there's some controversy about when it was written, but most scholars agree that it was about 2,000 years ago. Um, it had several sections, and one was anatomy. And of course, they were performing sort of, as I said before, a detailed dissection 500 years before the birth of Christ. And they named all the organs and named their functions. Um, in fact, they knew that the heart is an organ that pumps blood, you know, you know, way before Western, 2000 years before Western medicine really got a grip on it. And they also they did detailed sections on pathology when things, diseases manifested and went wrong, you know, and... It's a remarkable book, but early Western scholars had a problem. Um, this book's written in a dialect of Chinese that hasn't been in common use in China for more than a thousand years. You could show it to a modern Chinese person, they wouldn't be able to read it. And several Westerners took a crack at translating it. Uh, one of the first was a Dutch physician named Wilhelm ten Rijn. And ten Rijn worked for the Dutch East India Company in Japan from 1683 to 85. And he reported clinical success by Chinese and Japanese practitioners in treating a wide, wide range of disorders, including pain, internal organ problems, emotional disorders, and infectious diseases that were prevalent at the time. And he accurately translated the Chinese character for qi as air, not energy. But the translation we're most familiar with and the one that became the source for all the textbooks used in Western schools of Chinese medicine was done by a man named George Sul de Morant. He was a French bank clerk who lived in China from 1900 to 1917. And he was enamored with Chinese culture and philosophy and became interested in Chinese medicine during his stay. And... He made some huge mistakes that had some serious consequences for how Chinese medicine has been interpreted in the West. De Marant returned to France after his time in China with the intention of teaching Chinese medicine to French physicians. Conveniently, he promoted the idea that Chinese medicine didn't require an understanding of anatomy and physiology. He was a bank clerk, not a physician, so it's not surprising. But he did know something about uh, of Ayurvedic medicine and the traditional Indian medicine based on the idea of energy called prana throwing, flowing through invisible lines. And he applied these concepts to Chinese medicine. And the main problem with this version of Chinese medicine was his representation of qi as energy. And almost all of the misunderstanding about Chinese medicine revolves around this mistranslation. Uh, which continues to be used despite historical facts that clearly contradict it. Uh, the Chinese um, concept of qi bears no resemblance to the Western concept of energy. And often I think they use qi as energy for a lack of a better word. The commonly idea accepted 
in the West that Chinese medicine is an energetic metaphysical medicine was single-handedly created by this French bank clerk with no training in medicine or ancient Chinese language. It is neither historically accurate nor consistent with modern scientific understanding of the body. Since this energy model, meridian model, isn't clearly, is clearly incorrect, we must look to the classic Chinese medical text to discover the authentic fundamental concepts of Chinese medicine. And they are the, the Chinese describe the lungs breathing in what they call Da Qi. If you look up Da Qi in Chinese dictionary, you'll, you'll see it defined as great air. And the Chinese explain that lungs breathed in air and lungs extracted the Qi from the Dai Qi. So what do our lungs get from air that sustains life? And the answer, of course, is oxygen. And qi is defined as a vital vapour, air, or the essence of air. It can, it can also refer to the function of something um, and the weather. Qi does not necessarily mean energy. Uh, let, let me go over that again. Of course the Chinese hadn't identified the molecule we know as oxygen 2,000 years ago. They just didn't have the technology for that. But they did understand that we extracted something essential to life from the air we breathe. And they knew this vital air qi was circulated around the body to support physiological processes. Therefore, the closest translation of qi in a modern medical context is not energy, but oxygen. And they knew that this oxygen gets around the body through the blood. And they knew this from the, all the dissections they'd performed. Uh, so they knew that blood circulated through the blood vessels and it carried oxygen. And the, the, the word the Chinese used use for vessel is mai. And mai is correctly, you know, translated, um, zu mai, sorry, can I say, is correctly translated as blood vessel. So uh, the term meridian introduced by this guy de Brandt in his rendering of the concept of jing, which is essential energy, is one example among others of what, what might be called a creative reception of Chinese medicine in Europe and North America um, in recent years that really disassociates itself from any historical fact. The idea that blood, along with mysterious and undefined energy, circulate through these invisible meridians in the body was yet another creation of this demand with absolutely no relationship to what is written about Chinese medicine in the classical texts. Modern research has demonstrated that neurovascular nodes, acu acupuncture points, contain a high concentration of sensory fibres, fine blood vessels, fine lymphatic vessels and mast cells. These nodes are distributed, distributed along longitudinal pathways of the body where the collateral blood vessels supply the capillaries and fine vessels. The corneum stratum of the skin in these areas is slightly thinner with a lower electrical resistance. And they also contain more sensory nerves and have more fine vessels with sequestrated mast cells than non-nodes. Ancient Chinese physicians recognised that neurovascular nodes, otherwise acupuncture points, on the surface of the body could reflect disease conditions in the internal organs 
and these same nodes could be stimulated to relieve pain and treat internal organ problems. And this was a revolutionary discovery that formed the theoretical basis for acupuncture treatment. The irony to this story is that on his deathbed in 1955, de Moran admitted that what he referred to as meridians were in fact blood vessels. However, he still thought that energy flowed through the blood vessels. And as it turns out, he wasn't too far off. Energy is an abstract concept that means in work, and it can't be circulated in the blood. However, the potential for the energy in the form of oxygen and glucose is transported through the cardiovascular system. Energy production within each cell is initiated by breaking down each molecule of glucose from absorbed nutrients, of course, to form two molecules of pyruvate. Pyruvate produced in cell, cell cytoplasm is taken up by the mitochondria and enters the Krebs cycle. And then through the Krebs cycle, it converts, it's converted from ADP to ATP, and it's the fundamental unit of energy in the body. But this requires inhaled oxygen supplied by the red blood cells via capillaries. So we sort of got there in the end of explaining the, the, the physiological concept of energy uh, and also the, how it all ties together, although the concepts aren't accurate. So the traditional concepts of this mystical energy line aren't accurate. So the energy is from the glucose and the air we breathe, combined with, rub, red, combined, combined with the blood, move these essential nutrients around the body and by stimulating these nodes, what we can do with these nodes is change, is cause a healing potential to occur wherever those no nodes are in relation to the rest of the body. So then now we have to talk about how putting a needle in one of these points works. And first of all, it has three primary effects. It relieves pain, it reduces inflammation and it restores a thing called homeostasis, which as I talked about before, uh, is about getting balanced between yin and yang. And it's, it's the body's ability to regulate its environment and maintain internal balance. We know that acupuncture promotes blood flow and we know it stimulates the body's built-in healing mechanisms. And we know it releases natural painkillers. Inserting a needle sends a signal through the nervous system to the brain where chemicals such as endorphins, norepinephrine and enkephalin are released. And some of these substances are 10 to 200 times more potent than morphine. We know acupuncture reduces the intensity and perception of chronic pain. It does this through a process called descending control normalization, which involves the serotonergic nervous system. It relaxes muscles and it reduces stress because it balances the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems. And I've spoken about that ad nauseum in previous podcasts. So if you're interested in that, please check it out. 
I'd like to talk about the physiology of pain and why acupuncture can change the physiology of pain. Before I explain the mechanism, I have to give you a little background on the physiology and neurology involved. There are two types of nerves involved in our perception of pain. Sensory, uh, which are called nociceptive, and position, which are called proprioceptive nerves. Both of these nerves types are firing at the same time in an area when we're experiencing pain. These nerves travel to the spine and pass their information onto the neuron in the spinothalamic tract, which is in your brainstem. This tract travels up the lateral dorsal horn of the spinal cord to the midbrain. The sensory nerves register pain. The position nerves tell the brain where the pain is coming from. So the sensory nerves say, ouch, and the position nerves say, my knee. There are two different types of sensory nerves involved in the acupuncture response. There are A-delta fibres, which transmit sharp burning pain messages, and there are C-fibres, which transmit dull throbbing pain messages. A-delta fibres are responsible for acute pain, and they're short-lived. They fire for a while, and then the signals die off. C-fibres are responsible for chronic pain, and they fire for an extended period of time. A-delta fibres are surrounded by fatty myelin sheaths and they send at 50 feet per second. And C-fibres are unmyelinated and their signals travel at 20 feet per second. The A-delta fibres mediate what is known as the gamma loop. And the gamma loop is what gets activated when you stick a hand in your fire and your hand jumps back. These nerve fibres respond so quickly that your hand is immediately pulled back out of the fire. Chronic pain is a C-fibre problem, so C-fibre signals don't travel quite this quickly. Now, if the signal strength of the position nerves is what it's supposed to be, the brain will release powerful natural pain relieving substances called encephalins when it starts to receive those C-fibre messages. The encephalins then plug up pain receptor spots in the brain, spine and capillary beds where the pain is located and this stops the pain in its tracks. But sometimes this can go wrong. And this happens with people in chronic pain. The current explanation is that the position nerve signal going up the brain is too weak. The midbrain can't figure out where the pain is coming from, so the encephalons don't get released. This is why people in chronic pain often have trouble identifying exactly where the pain is. The neural threshold of the position nerve pathway is too low, so these people aren't getting a clear signal where the pain is emanating from. And this is really very relevant, I'd like to say, in chiropractic too, because people in chronic pain often have stiffness associated with their spine, so the lack of movement causes dysfunction with those C-fiber pain messages as well. Because the brain isn't getting the message, the nerve keeps firing, and it keeps firing, and firing, and firing. And after a while, the nerves become inflamed, which in turn further weakens the signal's ability to jump the threshold and get the message to the brain. So that's the first problem. The nerve signals are too weak for the brain to produce the painkillers. The second problem involves a survival mechanism that the brain evolved a very long time ago. Let's talk about a knee injury as an example. When we bang our knee into something, the brain immediately takes measures to protect it. 
The brain doesn't know what happened to the knee, but assumes a worst-case scenario. Maybe you've been bitten by a poisonous snake, or perhaps you have seriously cut your knee and are losing a lot of blood. What the brain does in this situation is to restrict the blood supply to the knee. This is actually a really intelligent choice. If you are bitten by a venomous snake, reducing blood flow around the knee will lessen the chance that the poison will spread. And if you are cut badly, reducing the blood flow will lessen your chances of bleeding to death. And this phenomenon is known as guarding. And one of the results of reducing blood flow to the knee is that it becomes stiff and weak. Does this sound familiar? The brain wants it to feel weak because it is attempting to protect the knee. The brain doesn't want whatever happened to the knee to threaten your chances for survival. So the brain sacrifices the health of the knee in order to keep you alive. And this was a great strategy before the advent of Western emergency medicine. Almost everyone would prefer to lose function in their knee to death, but this isn't a choice we have to worry about in our modern lives. And the problem is that cutting off blood flow to the knee, while it may have saved our lives in times of past, it dramatically limits the knee's ability to heal. Because everything we need to heal is in the blood, as we've already spoken about. The blood contains painkillers, anti-inflammatories, nutrients from absorbed food, oxygen hormones and immune substances to fight infection. If the blood flow is restricted to a particular area, healing won't occur. No blood flow means no healing. Stop and think about this for a minute. It's such an obvious fact that it's often overlooked in medicine. It's not taught in such a direct way in medical school, but it's such a simple concept that once you think about it, it makes perfect sense. So now I think you're guessing how acupuncture works. Um, Inserting needles into the skin and peripheral sites jumps the neural threshold on the position nerve pathway so the signal can reach the brain. Once the signal reaches the brain, the whole series of events I described in, the, you know, in what I've spoken about already, the brain recognises there is pain and where it's coming from and releases painkillers. The initial response is very fast. It's often instantaneous. The old bad habit of the nerve chronically firing below the threshold re-establish itself. The body, like the mind, has a hard time breaking bad habits. And that's where ongoing treatment to fix the problem is super important. Once this happened, the brain is no longer receiving pain signals from the knee. It no longer thinks the knee is injured or threatened the survival of the body. Now, instead of restricting blood flow to the knee, it does the opposite. It increases the blood, so blood supply. It vasodilates the capillaries and increases blood flow and the healing process can begin. There are millions of immune cells called mast cells in the dermis of the skin. And these are like water balloons full of fatty molecules. When a needle is pricked into the skin, it pops the mast cells and release, releases leukotrienes and prostaglandins and they're the strongest strongest anti-inflammatory substance the body can produce. Genetically the body is not designed to be in chronic pain. It will do everything it can to get us out of pain. Acupuncture reminds the body how it should be functioning 
and it helps its powerful inbuilt pain relieving mechanisms kick into gear. It's a bit like jump starting a car. You're not changing how the car works or even adding anything to the engine. You're just giving the battery a little jolt so the car can run how it's supposed to. It's important to understand that this neurochemical mechanism not only provides pain relief, but it also promotes homeostasis and tissue healing and regulates the immune system, endocrine system, cardiovascular and digestive system. This explains why getting acupuncture treatment for your knee also addresses other problems you might have, such as asthma, irritable bowel, high blood pressure, anxiety, insomnia, and the list goes on. Finally, I'd like to finish up by saying um, we've covered a lot of territory, so stick with me for the last bit. And that is how acupuncture can, can help you where drugs and surgery can't. And here's why. Acupuncture treats your whole body it isn't directed towards a particular disease or condition. It works by activating the body's self-healing ability. And this is why acupuncture can address everything from IBS to back pain to the side effects of chemo. The Chinese also knew that a malfunctional disease process can give rise to many different symptoms that may seem unrelated. For example, headaches, heartburn and skin rashes may all be expressions of the same underlying problem. Western medicine, on the other hand, often mistakes symptoms for disease. Treatment is always, almost always directed at the symptom, not the disease. So this philosophy created the notion that the body is a machine composed of many parts and separate parts. And we've explained that mechanistic um, approach to health once again in in previous podcasts but there's no often not consideration for how the parts are connected and related and this is why in western medicine we have doctors for every different part of our body we've got cardiologists for our hearts gastroenterologists for our guts gynecologists for reproduction neurologists for our brains and we've carved the body up into various parts and put different doctors in charge of taking care of each part in a perfect medical system, these doctors will be communicating frequently and sharing ideas about their patients. While this does happen in some cases, all too often it doesn't. I don't believe this is the fault of the doctors themselves. They are much of the victims of the deficiencies of our healthcare systems as patients are. Acupuncturists have a different perspective, as do chiropractors, because it's based on a holistic approach. The difference with acupuncture is that it looks as it can actually improve the function of organs, where Western medicine acts more to minimize symptoms through medication. We know when we, we take a medication, the symptoms might, might die down, but drugs don't only suppress symptoms, Drugs also suppress function. Though drugs provide symptom relief in the short term, over time they may worsen, worsening, they may, can I say that again, they may worsen the underlying condition and interfere with the body's self-healing mechanisms. For example, many people type, type 
take ibuprofen or anti-inflammatory drugs. Incidentally, I, I posted a, uh, a post on Facebook last week about how that's been now linked to heart disease. Um, and many people take them to cope with arthritis and, and, and um, inflammatory conditions. They are effective in reducing pain and inflammation in the short term. Uh, they are known to reduce blood flow to cartilage. Since blood carries all the nutrients, immune substance necessary for tissue repair, these drugs can actually worsen the original problem when taken chronically. We've already spoken about acupuncture's relationship with, its, with the immune system. And we know that the side effects are pretty much with acupuncture non-existent. So I hope that ties up uh, most of the concepts besides acupuncture and yin-yang theory and a little bit of touching on a little bit of traditional Chinese medicine. I didn't talk about moxibustion, which is those little cigar things that I use sometimes in clinic. And very simply, all cupping, but I use both of those. And often moxibustion is very similar to using needles, but it just, it's like using heat into the point instead of using moxib, what it is is a compressed herb, and it penetrates heat deeply into the acupuncture point. So it's great when blood isn't flowing well, uh, or when there's cold or damp that's in the body that needs to be expelled. And the cupping's great for peripheral blood flow as well as those red marks will attest if anyone's had those after treatment. The cupping's been used in ancient cultures for thousands of years to help with febrile disease and sickness as well. So it's great at pulling heat out of the body. I really hope you enjoyed this little talk, um, something I've been meaning to do for a long time. And I, there's several people I have to thank, um, primarily one being a practitioner that I saw for a long time, a lady called uh, Lily Lou, who helped me understand uh, acupuncture in greater deal, and I've been a patient of hers for many years. And also a guy called Chris Resser, who has really worked hard in explaining some of these concepts I've been um, chatting about today. Uh, hope uh, this has been worthwhile. Really appreciate you listening in, and have a great day. I, I hope you enjoyed it. All the best. If you have any questions, please don't hesitate to call me. Uh, back to life. Uh, call me or email me. Uh, emails back to life seven at bigpond.com. Thank you.